have your Bible with you. We're in Luke chapter 1. Everything about the infancy narrative, which is the first two chapters of Luke, is not only a description of events as they actually happen, but is a proclamation and portrait of how God was going to save sinners. In verses 5 to 24, he appears to a faithful old covenant priest named Zechariah, whose wife Elizabeth was barren. They were justified by faith in God who counted them righteous and blameless but were held in reproach by their religious community as tainted by guilt and sin which to them was the reason they were prevented from having a child but God heard their prayers and God chose them to be the vessel through which the forerunner of the Messiah would be born, John the Baptist. In their story we hear of how God has begun to move in time to bring about the birth of the Savior of the world, the one who would prepare Israel for his arrival by proclaiming that the time had come and hearts must be prepared to receive him was about to be born. That's what verses 5 through 24 tell us. This morning in verses 26 to 38, we pick up the story six months later with Elizabeth's niece, most likely, a young woman named Mary. And we learn that for the gift of God to actually be received and appropriated, God is going to have to do a miracle also in the hearts of people. All throughout Scripture, God had given barren women the ability to conceive in order to show His power so that people might believe His Word and cling to His promise. Now that the fullness of time had come, and this was the moment God would give the full and final display of His power by sending His Son into the world, it's not a barren woman, but a virgin woman that God will cause to conceive. And the angel's pronouncement to her is the prototype of how salvation will occur in all who receive Christ. God overshadows us in our sinfulness and inability to bring about what is impossible for us to accomplish our own salvation. Let me pray and we'll look at this passage together. Father, I am thankful for Your Word this morning, for its power and its permanence, for its beauty and intricacy and detail, O God. We praise You for what You've woven into these words. May we be able to bring it out this morning. Lord, please help me preach by the power and presence and provision of Your Holy Spirit. By this same Spirit, calls all to be able to listen and to believe what is being said in your word. We ask and pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. So when Elizabeth was six months pregnant with John the Baptist, just one month after she came basically out of hiding in verse 24, the angel Gabriel makes another visit. Things have been set in motion here that cannot and will not be undone. This time, Gabriel is sent from God to the village of Nazareth, not the more orthodox Judea, but this obscure, many crossroads of trade and contact with the outside world. The town of Nazareth is never mentioned in the Old Testament. It's never referred to by the Jewish historian Josephus. 
or in early Jewish literature at all. Its population at this time is estimated to be about 400 to 500 people. In John 1.46, we find out that not only was it obscure and tiny, it didn't have a good reputation at all. It wasn't well thought of. It was nicknamed the place of garbage, the place of trash. That's what it was for people, a trash heap. And on top of that, Gabriel is sent to an obscure young woman in an obscure town. She's probably between 13 and 18 years old at the most, betrothed to a man named Joseph. When God seeks people out, those are the places He goes. And we try so hard to impress God or others and make ourselves into something worthy. And God has done nothing but leave a witness to the fact that He isn't interested in such things. The more you try to give to Him, the farther He is from you. If God wanted our performance or our accomplishments, He would have left the law in place as the means of righteousness and salvation. But He didn't. Instead, He justifies by faith alone, in Christ alone, completely apart from ourselves. And all this is wrapped up in the story of Podunk Nazareth and unknown Mary. All we know about her in Luke's account is that she was a virgin. She's called that twice in verse 27. Contrast that with Zechariah. Zechariah had all kinds of descriptors given about him. He got his family background, his occupation, his character, his status within the religious life of Israel was very important in order for him to be the father of the end of the prophet, of the end of the old covenant and the last prophet. Mary's humble status, her physical disqualification from pregnancy, is the main thing in this passage of how Jesus became incarnate in the world. In other words, the era of law and performance and all the details being lined up and all the I's dotted and the T's crossed, that is passing away. With Mary, we're introduced to the era of grace and Mary's inability and obscurity and insufficiency is the main thing about her in the passage. Much more of a barrier than Elizabeth's old age, Mary's virginity invites the necessity of an even greater miracle if God is going to bring about His will. And the angel says, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Mary didn't know that, but Gabriel tells her that's the case. The Lord is with you right now. This describes how it is precisely or why it is that Mary is considered favored. Mary is not something divine in and of herself that caused God to visit her. God favors her and has chosen her. Therefore, He is with her. To be greeted by God through an angel and assured of His presence is to be favored by God. Especially when we live in Nazareth and don't have anything God can use. Mary will burst out in praise when she visits Elizabeth and this fact will be at the heart of her song. She'll call God her Savior because that's who He was to her also. The Lord has looked on her. He has favored her. She's amazed by this. It doesn't make sense. Mary is surprised at this. She doesn't understand it. It's completely unexpected. This visit then is not the delivery of a paycheck for good behavior and services rendered by Mary. It's an act of pure grace from God that Mary didn't expect and didn't earn 
And yet here she is. We pick it up in verse 29. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Mary was not chosen by God to bear the Messiah on earth because she was sinless. If that were the case, there would be no talk of here of favor and grace, but of merit and recognition. And that's not what we get. But we don't want to lose sight this morning of how amazing a young woman Mary actually was. She's the mother of God on the earth. Unlike Zechariah, she doesn't doubt. Mary doesn't doubt. She knows what God is capable of, and she believes. She just wonders, first of all, why an angel is visiting her. What, what does this greeting mean, that an angel is here talking to me, an unknown, unimportant virgin in Nazareth? What does it mean that God's angel is visiting her? There's no rebuke this time from Gabriel because of her question. There's only the word of comfort. Again, Gabriel is not closing the Old Covenant era of law here. He's not announcing that. He's announcing the era of grace. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. This is an unexpected pronouncement. Who on earth finds favor with God when there is none righteous on the earth? No, not one. How does anybody find favor with God? Verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. God's favor over Mary will be displayed in the divine conception of the Messiah, even though she is a virgin from Nazareth who isn't even married yet. She's only betrothed. Now, Jewish betrothal was a much more serious step than engagement is in our culture. A marriage wasn't consummated during betrothal. At least it wasn't supposed to be. But betrothal was considered as binding as marriage and any violation of it was considered adultery. By this time in Israel... They're not carrying out the death penalty for adultery as was prescribed by the law. That was very seldom carried out. But what difference would that have made to Mary now? For all she knew, if she managed to escape that fate, she's most certainly going to be deserted and despised by her family. She will bring such shame upon them. She'll be deserted by everyone, not least of all her betrothed himself. How is that favor? Salvation trumps the fallout. That's how. The entire hope of the whole Old Testament is about to be realized. Gabriel ties the coming of this child to the ancient promise to King David and his line. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. The coming of this child is connected to the promise at the center of God's covenant with the great King David. Way back in 2 Samuel 7.16, God had told David that your throne will be established forever. And his line shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. In Psalm 89.36, Micah 4.7, 
Daniel 7.14, which also speak of the unending nature of David's throne. Gabriel repeats, he reinforces that promise here to Mary. David's descendant upon David's throne, ruling over the house of Jacob forever. The promise to David will be fulfilled and realized in his descendant and his Lord Jesus the Christ. The coming of Jesus and the New Testament. See in the promises to David that he would sit on the throne forever, the person of Jesus. Mary would understand Jesus ruling over the house of Jacob as hope for believing Israel, that God had not abandoned them. This is an old promise. At this moment, there was no king reigning in Israel. No Davidic king whatsoever could be found. In fact, there hadn't been one for almost 600 years by this time. 600 years. That would take us back to the 15th century. That's how long it's been since there's been a king in Israel. Gabriel's announcement means that God has not given up. He's not forgotten. The promise didn't expire. The promise of 2 Samuel 7 and Daniel 7 were still in force. And all of God's saving activity prior to this moment finds its culmination and fulfillment in the birth of this child. Mary, you have found favor with God. He is going to keep that great promise by conceiving a child in your womb. And your child will reign on David's throne over his people forever. We we aren't looking for David to leave heaven and sit on an earthly throne, beloved. Goodness, no. This child, David's descendant and Lord, is given the throne of his father David. He will sit on David's throne forever. But what is Mary's concern at this announcement? How human and gritty is this story in verse 34? And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Like, that's great. That's awesome. But you know that thing that you do to have a baby? Yeah, I've never done that. Ever. And Mary is picking up on the fact that Gabriel is saying this is happening right now. I'm not married. I can't get pregnant. Now, Mary apparently knows that God can, but she just doesn't understand. How could this apply to me? How will God accomplish and apply the promise is the question of this text and of this moment in history and of the ages for all of us. How do we get what Jesus gives? How do we get it? Verse 35. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Two words, beloved. See, two words here, and you get the whole thing. The first is in verse 35, overshadow. The second is in verse 37, impossible. In those two words is the whole story of Christianity and salvation. In those two words. The conception of this child would be a supernatural act of God, first of all. The normal means of accomplishing pregnancy would not be used. Right? And for God, they're not required. 
He creates out of nothing. That's what we find in Genesis 1. The powerful presence of God with Mary would accomplish this. Remember, He was with her. But the specific how is unclear. We don't understand how. We just know that it did. There would be no sexual union. It is simply the case that the Holy Spirit Himself, the one who hovered over the face of the waters at the creation of the world, would hover over Mary's womb, so to speak, at the new creation, and bring about the conception of Jesus, who is eternally preexistent with the Father, the second person of the Trinity, would be made into a seed that supernaturally unites with an egg in Mary and is conceived as a human child. How? I don't know. That's what happened. This is why the child to be born to her will be called holy. That's why. He's the Son of God made into human flesh without the stain of sin inherited from Adam, from his father. This baby won't have that. Martin Luther maintained that this happened in that moment through the power of God's Word. And I agree. I think he's right. Mary heard the life-giving, life-creating Word of God and this child was conceived in her womb. The God-man is conceived in the womb of a virgin girl from Nazareth six months into Elizabeth's pregnancy with John the Baptist during the days of Herod. In verse 36, Gabriel gives the fact that Elizabeth is pregnant as an additional sign to strengthen Mary's faith here by letting her know that God is up to something in the world right now and you're a part of it, Mary. Her barren aunt is pregnant also. Why? Why is that happening too? In verse 37, here's why. For nothing will be impossible with God. Not barren women conceiving. Israel already knew that but also not a virgin conceiving either. That won't be impossible either. Isaiah had prepared them for this. In Isaiah chapter 7, this was God's plan. But nor will the salvation of any sinner be impossible. Nor will your salvation be impossible. This God can do it. The child conceived in Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit is the incarnate presence of God on the earth. This is the moment of the incarnation of our Lord with us. What will be this young woman's response to this? What is Mary going to say? She's just a teenager. And maybe, maybe, which very unlikely that she was 18, but I have three daughters. My little boy's 12. He's got six years. My one daughter will be 17 next month. Unbelievable. My other two are 18 and 19. 18 and 19, you're growing up, but you're still little. I didn't know that when I was 18. My daughters don't know that. They don't think that. But 18 is young. It's young. She's younger than that, I think. Verse 38, and Mary said, Behold, I am the servant, the slave of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. 
that is how you receive the gospel. That's how God does it. The word of the gospel that came to Mary created faith in her heart. Faith to believe the impossible. For us, these are Christmas texts. That's when we usually read those, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. The best time of year by far. They're Christmas texts or Advent ones to us, and so the story might get a little perfunctory to us, right, or at least mundane, and not because anything's wrong in us, but just when you hear something over and over and over again, that's how your mind starts to work. But Mary is saying here that she accepted whatever the personal cost was going to be to her to bear this child. Privilege or punishment, she didn't know. Not now. But now that God had given her faith, this was her position, come hell or high water. For all she knew, this was the moment or all she knew in this moment, her betrothal to Joseph is over. Her hope for means and provision for the rest of her life, that's done. Well, why don't you just tell him what happened? Okay. Right, Joseph, listen, I'm pregnant, but it's the Son of God, and I wasn't with a man. Um, any, any guy on the earth is like, oh, okay. We'll keep the betrothal, no big whoop, it happens all the time. Right? For all she knows, that's over. Maybe she loved Joseph. Who, who knows? But either way, that's over. Her security and stability for the rest of her life, as far as she knows, is gone. What was Joseph going to say? What were people going to think? Could you imagine a young woman trying to figure out how to tell this to her parents? These are deeply religious people. As far as Mary was concerned, what she's being told is to risk everything in her life to bear this child. For her to just receive the Word of the Lord in light of all the trouble it brings, all the risk, all the impossibility, for her to just say, let it be to me according to your Word, that's the model of faith in the Bible. There it is, right there. This pleases God. I am the slave of the Lord. I'm your servant. Let it be to me according to your word. Whatever you say, let it be for me. Why does faith please God? You see, that we, that's the sinner's prayer. If you actually want it to come from the Bible. Let it be to me according to your word. Please God. What you said, let it be so for me. Why does faith please God? Because faith says nothing more and nothing less than this. What your word says, let it be, no matter how impossible. And there is nothing we will more certainly receive from the Lord with those words than our salvation. Beloved, do you see it? Do you see how God saves in this passage? Where were you and I? Or where are we this morning, maybe? In our desperation, in the backwater town of Nazareth, in our soul. What do we have? We're in the mundane rhythms of our everyday lives. We possess nothing that will please God. And we can do nothing to improve our situation before God. But then the gospel comes into our desperation and sin saying, The Lord is with us. He has visited us. 
He has not left us to ourselves. He isn't waiting for us to make ourselves worthy or to do enough to earn His visitation. He comes to our Nazareth. He comes to our obscure place of garbage. He comes to us in our helplessness and inability to pronounce His favor, His grace for us. What have we done to earn it? What have we done to earn the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus for us? Nothing. And He's offering it to us as our salvation. That is favor. That is grace. And when we hear the word of the gospel and ponder, but how could that be for me? How are you going to do that for me? Lord, you don't know what I've done. Yes, He does. Lord, you see my mind. You you, you see everything about me. You know why I do what I do and what I do and what I say and what I think. You know the mess I've made of my life. You know how hard I try and I still can't do it. Whatever it is that you would say, would make it impossible for God to save you. He's heard it all. He knows it all. What is more impossible than a virgin conceiving? That's like a married bachelor. And he says to us, no, 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 don't be afraid. I'm going to do this. I'm going to accomplish this. I will send my son And He has. And you shall call Him by His name, Jesus. He will save His people from their sins. His righteousness is so vast that it will make you righteous before Me. He is great. He is the all-sufficient, never-ending, never-failing, always-perfect Savior. He is my Son. He is the Son of the Most High. And He will reign forever on the throne of David. God promised so long ago. His kingdom will never end. You will be secure forever in Him. You will live eternally. You will reign with Him. But we will hear all that like we hear it every Sunday, knowing that we're sinners. Knowing that we don't measure up. Knowing that we've made a mess of our lives and are not worthy of such great things. We'll worry that our presumptuous sins will condemn us. Because even though we know the truth, we still sin in some of the ways we've been sinning since we were young. How can God save me? Even after the pronouncement, after the assurance, we'll still wonder. And God says the Holy Spirit will overshadow you and create faith in the sinful, rebellious void of your soul. Therefore, you will be holy before me. I will make you that way by giving to you the righteousness of my beloved Son. That's what faith gets. All the sin washed away. All the guilt covered. Paid for. Finished. And all the righteousness I lack given to me full credit, all that Christ has done, applied to my account. Impossible. Right. Good news. The impossible is all He does. I will grant you His righteousness so that not only will your guilt be washed away, but your lack of righteousness will be filled in by His who came to earth 
who lived and who died for you, that this might be true for you. You will be born again. And that new life I create inside that shell you live in will be holy and will be called my son, my own. For nothing will be impossible for me. I hope you heard that because God said that for you. God knew that this day would come. That you would live to see this day. That you would hear of the gospel's promise for you. And if you're saved already, great. Hear it again. It's for you. Right? Don't, it's not like he dies for a bucket full of people he doesn't know the names of. He means to save everybody. He knows your name, your story, the path of your life that led you literally to this moment, whatever the reason might be that you're here. This is for you. For you to hear. For you to know. God wanted you here to hear this. Not for my sake. For your sake. Your salvation. No, not even yours. Will be impossible for God. Why does He work such great miracles? Why does He do it this way? To comfort your soul. Your soul. When your flesh and the enemy whisper to you, that's not for you. You're a joke. Why, why do you think God would do this for you? Why do you think He will forgive you? Why do you think He'll forgive you again? You saved, righteous, that's impossible. Good. That's exactly what it means to be for you and I to be saved. Embrace the impossibility of salvation by any other means. It's impossible. And say, all right, Lord, I hear you. I believe it. It's from me. What do I do? Nothing. Nothing. Receive Him. Lord, let it be to me according to Your Word. Beloved, salvation is according to God's Word about you. It's not according to Your Word about you or my Word about you. Certainly not according to the enemy's Word about you. It's not according to the world's Word about you or your families or your work or your friends or enemies, whatever else it is. It's not according to their Word. It's not according to your word. It has nothing to do with that. just His. This is all according to what He said. I want it to always be to me according to His word. I don't ever want it to be according to my faith, my works, my heart, my desire to get better. I don't want it to be according to that. I don't want my assurance to rest in the fact that I wish I was better and that I want to try really hard to be better. I don't want my salvation to be according to that Lord. I want my salvation to be according to His Lord. Because salvation is of the Lord. It's of the Lord. Yes, Mary was filled with the grace of God. But we are all full of grace upon receiving Jesus Christ whose Spirit lives within us. Salvation is for you. For you. Receive Him. Let it be to you according to His word.
Amen.